Since the beginning of the universe, man's been cursed by trouble. These are the words that Bob Dylan wrote way back in 1980. And Job echoes those sentiments in the first verse of Job chapter 14 when he says, Man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. And Job could speak from a fearsome experience, couldn't he? He knew all about trouble. And here in 2020, you and me are living through days when the nations of this world are troubled. They're troubled by a pandemic, or political leaders are troubled, or medical and scientific experts are troubled, or economies in trouble, or environments in trouble, a world facing a troubled future. When we look into the church, we see God's people troubled by persecution, persecution at a level previously unknown. Our brothers and sisters tonight in India, Nigeria, Pakistan, North Korea, and parts of the Middle East could tell you how tough it is to be a Christian and living in 2020. Here in Western society, we God's people are troubled as we witness the, the rapid abandoning of the Christian moral and ethical standards that our constitution and our laws were based on. And on a personal level, none of us are immune to trouble, are we? Troubles that are common to all. Troubles with regard to health, employment, relationships, our own mental well-being. Trouble. Trouble causes us to be fearful. Trouble causes us to be anxious. And as we turn to John 14 this evening, we see that this is the very issue that Jesus seeks to address. In this upper room, before him, he has 11 troubled hearts. You see, Jesus here is only a matter of hours away from crucifixion. Judas has already left the room, and the clock is ticking on that sequence of events that will lead to his betrayal, his trial, his execution. But praise God, his glorious resurrection. If we turn back to the previous chapter in chapter 13, the Bible tells us that Jesus himself was troubled in verse 21. Troubled as he informs the disciples that one of them is going to betray him. The disciples themselves are troubled because Jesus, in verse 33 of chapter 13, tells them of his imminent departure. And he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And Peter is troubled. In response to his bragging, Jesus informs him that he's going to deny his Lord three times. And Jesus does that in front of all the other disciples. Peter's troubled. You find that in verse 38 of chapter 13. So this small group of disciples are troubled and fearful. They're contemplating a future without Jesus. And that must have been a shocking prospect for them. And Jesus here seeks to calm their troubled hearts as he seeks to prepare them for the next 24 hours, which are going to be a shattering experience for them. 
But we see in verses 1 to 27, which are bookended by the words, let not your hearts be troubled. And there again in verse 27, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Between these verses, Jesus seeks to prepare them for what lies ahead. Not just for the next 24 hours, but for a life of trial and testing. A life of suffering and rejection as they seek to obey the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. So how does Jesus seek to calm their troubled hearts? Well, he does it by revealing six amazing truths in these verses. Truths that are not just for the benefit of the disciples that were in front of him, but for every succeeding generation of believers. And as we seek to live for Jesus Christ today here in Dundonald in 2020, we too can lay hold upon this remedy or these remedies that Jesus articulates here for troubled hearts. And before Jesus goes through these six great truths, he urges his disciples to have faith in him. What does he say there in verse 1? He says, believe in God. He says, believe also in me. The NIV puts it, trust in God. Trust also in me. You see, the answer to trouble is trust or faith. And faith is only effective because of the one in whom that faith is placed. You wouldn't ring me up if you wanted some major plumbing work done in your house. That would be faith misplaced. You would send for Roy. (laughs) But Jesus is saying here, he says, trust. He says, you trust in God, don't you? And he knew the disciples trusted in God. We've just been singing about how great God is, right, at the very commencement of our service. Well, we weren't singing, we were listening to it, weren't we? God is powerful, he's great, he's dependable, he's faithful to his promises. And now Jesus says, well, trust also in me. Trust my words. Trust in what I'm going to say. Trust in what I'm going to do for you. And then Jesus comes to the first of these great truths. He says to the disciples, you are going to be with me. You are going to be with me. You see, Jesus tells them here that he's going away. He's going away to secure their future destiny. He says in verse 2, doesn't he? I am going to prepare a place for you. The you being here, the disciples, of course, but also for all who die trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And here, of course, the place is, is heaven. And we see in these verses, it's a real place. Jesus talks about it in verse 2, it's the Father's house. And in verse 28, he says it's where the Father is. And it's also, we know, the place where all those who die in the Lord go. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 8, he says, being away from the body and at home with the Lord. It's a real place. It's a different place. We see in verse 2 there terms that we're very familiar with. House, rooms. We can understand that, can't we? But this prepared place is not at all like the here and now. Because God is there and Jesus is there 
And if they're there, no sin is there. And John reminds us of that in the last book of the Bible. In Revelation, he says there's no sin there, Revelation 21 and 27. And because there's no sin, there's no death or crying or pain there, Revelation 21 and 4. In fact, it's a place that is way beyond our expectations. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 and 9, he says, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. It's a real place, it's a different place, but note also that it's an exclusive place because not everyone will be there. Only those who have trusted in Jesus for salvation. He and he alone is the way to this exclusive place. Look at what he says in verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Only those who have come through the Lord Jesus Christ will be in this place. And I wonder this evening, are you on your way to this place? Is Jesus, has he gone to prepare a place for you? Are you fully trusting in Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life? But notice, Jesus is not only going to prepare a place, he says that he's coming back again in verse 3, a clear reference to his second coming. Jesus is coming back for all those believers who will be alive on earth at the time of his return. And 1 Thessalonians 4 and 16 and 17 tell us about that. Let not your heart be troubled. You are going to be with Jesus. But secondly, Notice another amazing truth in verse 7. He says there, from now on, you do know him, that's the Father, and have seen him. You know the Father. Who is Jesus referring to here? He's referring to God the Father. The one that the hymn writer Walter Smith could write about when he said, the one who's immortal, invisible. God only wise, the father of glory, the father of light, the great creator, the almighty, the victorious one, the God of eternity. This is the God that you and I know this evening. We know him not just in a factual sense, not that we could rattle off a a number of facts about him, but we know him because we're related to him. He's our father and we are his children. We speak with him often, don't we? And we listen to what he has to say to us through his word. And Jesus tells us here that whoever has seen him, that's Jesus, has seen the Father. Because the Father is perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 1. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the fullness of the deity in bodily form. And Hebrews 1 and 3 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. In fact, Jesus says in John 10 and verse 30, I and the Father are one. You know the Father because you know Jesus. And how does the Father respond To us as individuals, we who fail him, we who sin, we who are disobedient. 
Well, in the words of another hymn by Henry Francis Lydon, he wrote, Father-like, he tends and spares us. Well, our feeble frame he knows, in his hands he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. The psalmist could write in Psalm 103 and verse 13, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Do you know the Father this evening? Is the living God your Father? Encourage yourselves this evening. Let not your hearts be troubled. You know the Father. But in verse 14 we read there that Jesus says you can ask for anything in his name. Clear implication here of prayer, isn't it? What a remedy prayer is for troubled hearts. Many of us can testify that our most earnest prayers are those uttered when we're passing through the furnace of affliction. And what a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. Even the godless, don't they? They tell us that they pray when they're in trouble. But notice these verses before us set several conditions to our asking and to God's answering of our prayers. Look at verse 12. Whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, we must pray in faith. Jesus says that it is our faith in him that releases the power of God in our lives. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews 11 and 16. We must pray in Jesus' name. We see that in verses 13 and verses 14, where Jesus said, Ask in my name. Ask for anything in my name. This is not some magical formula, not some kind of add-on at the close of our prayers that will guarantee God's blessing. Because to ask in Jesus' name means to ask for those things that Jesus would ask for. To ask for those things that are consistent with his word and consistent with his will. To ask for those things that will bring him glory. The challenge I have from these verses is, do I misuse the name of Jesus in my praying? We can so often be selfish in our prayers, can't we? and attach at the end of it in Jesus' name. But there's a third condition here. We must pray as those who are living in obedience to his commands. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And the psalmist tells us that if we cherish sin in our heart, the Lord will not listen to us. Psalm 66 and verse 19. Let not your heart be troubled. You can ask for anything in Jesus' name. But verse 16 tells us about a fourth blessing here. There Jesus says to his disciples, you will be given another helper. For them, that was in front of them because that would come on the day of Pentecost. But for each of us who are professing faith in the Lord Jesus, that happens when we come to him in repentance and faith. 
you have been given the Holy Spirit. Jesus reminding his disciples here that even though he's leaving them, they will not be alone. He says here, you will never be alone. And we need to apply that to ourselves, especially in times of trouble. You are never alone. Because what does verse 17 tell us? It tells us there that the Holy Spirit dwells with you and the Holy Spirit is in you. And look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit as these verses tell us. In an age of so much false teaching, the Bible tells us here that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. John 16 and verse 13 tells us that the spirit of truth guides us into all truth. He's our helper in verse 16, a word that is translated counselor in other uh, translations. Counselor, someone who gives advice. Can also be translated comforter, one who gives us strength, one who strengthens us in our weakness. And it also can mean advocate, someone who stands with us and pleads our cause. He's our helper. But verse 26, he's our teacher. He's our teacher. Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, and the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He reveals God's word and God's ways to us bringing them to remembrance at those times when maybe we face temptation, maybe we face discouragement. And this had a special meaning for the disciples because the very words we're reading here were brought to John's remembrance. These events in the upper room were recorded by John because the Holy Spirit brought to his remembrance what took place on that evening. He brings to our remembrance what God teaches us. And of course, we know in other parts of Scripture, and we were thinking about that this morning with Chris, the Holy Spirit helps us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He also empowers us to exercise our spiritual gifts. What a remedy for troubled hearts. You have been given the Holy Spirit who will never leave you, who will never forsake you. Well, Jesus now goes on to assure his disciples that he will not leave them as orphans. He won't leave them as orphans. Verse 18. Orphans. Left, bereft of parents. Those who are isolated, alone, feeling unloved, feeling unwanted. And Jesus reminds the disciples in verse 21, you are loved by the Father and you are loved by the Son. Verse 21, I will love him and manifest myself to him and he who loves me will be loved by my Father as well. We know that God's love is demonstrated for us 
in that once we were still, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we see the death of the Lord Jesus referred to in verse 19 when he says to his disciples, he says, Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But then he tells them of his resurrection. But he says in verse 19, But you will see me. That's to his disciples. And because I live, you also will live. And then in verse 20, he refers them to the coming of the Holy Spirit. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Verse 21 there, the whoever refers to all those by faith who has responded to this demonstration of God's love all those who have received him, all those who have believed in his name, all those who are born again of his spirit and have the right to be called the children of God. John 1 and verses 12 and 13. And these verses tell us that as we respond in loving obedience, so we are assured of the love of the Father and the Son. A love that George Wade Robinson penned so beautifully in the words of the hymn, were loved with an everlasting love, led by grace that love to know, spirit breathing from above, you have taught me it is so. Oh, this full and perfect peace, oh, this presence so divine in a love that cannot cease. I am his and he is mine. What precious words those are, aren't they? Let not your heart be troubled. Jesus reminds his disciples and you and me that we are loved by the Father and we're loved by the Son. And finally this evening in verse 27, you have been given the peace of Jesus. You've been given the peace of Jesus. Peace I leave with you, he says. My peace I give to you. For many today, peace simply means the absence of stress. Give my head peace is a famous Ulster expression, isn't it? Or perhaps it's the absence of conflict in the world that we think, well, that's what peace means. But the Hebrew word here for peace, that beautiful word shalom, means much more than that. Warren Wearsby says it means wholeness. It means completeness, contentment. Security. It speaks of a peace that is absolutely unique, a peace that is a, a spiritual reality. Bruce Millen says that shalom here is really life at its very best under the gracious hand of God. And he goes on to write in his commentary on John that shalom is a peace that's born from a living, personal relationship. It's a peace that is deepened through a growing surrender to God's gracious rule. It's a peace that the Holy Spirit makes available to our troubled hearts. I wonder this evening, do you know peace? Peace with God. That peace between a hell-deserving sinner and a holy God. That peace made possible through Jesus taking your punishment, 
dying your death so that you might be free of God's judgment for sin. Because only when we know peace with God will we know this amazing peace of God or this amazing peace of Jesus. The peace that Philippians 4 and verse 7 talks of when it says it surpasses all understanding. This wholesome and complete peace which is able to do two things. Guard your hearts and guard your minds. Isn't that what we need in times of trouble? That our hearts would be guarded and our minds would be guarded? Because our minds play lots of games with us, don't they? In times of trouble. Let not your heart be troubled. You are going to be with Jesus. You know the Father. You can ask for anything in Jesus' name. You have been given the Holy Spirit. You are loved by the Father and the Son. You have been given the peace of Jesus. I wonder, do you realize here who's at the center of all of these great truths? It was the one who was ministering in that upper room. It's the Lord Jesus. It's Jesus who has gone to prepare you a place. It's through Jesus that you know the Father. It's in his name that you can ask for anything. It's his Holy Spirit that is within you. It's his love that sustains you. And it's his peace that guards your hearts and your minds. As we leave this evening, Jesus says to us, let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. And you leave this evening with Jesus. He's the remedy for troubled hearts. We're going to 